Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In this episode, I'll be interviewing two of the acquisitions editors at the MIT Press about their work. These interviews are to coincide with the MIT Press's virtual attendance of the College Art Association Conference, with the hopes that they might go some way to replicating the many discussions that would usually take place at the CAA conference. To begin with, I'll be speaking with the senior acquisitions editor for Art and Architecture, Tom Weaver, about his time at the Architectural Association in London, his new position at the press, and his various editorial interests. After which, I'll be speaking with Victoria Hindley, who's been an acquisitions editor at the press since 2016, working in the fields of art, design, and visual culture. So you've been at MIT, has it been a year yet? It's just over a year. So just I started in October 2019. I think it would be helpful for people if you could talk a little bit about, so you was it 10 years running the AA files and their kind of publishing wing of that university. If you could talk about that a little bit so people can kind of get uh, to grips with uh, what you did there and then lead into MIT after that, I think. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've come out of an academic background fundamentally. So I did my undergrad, grad, and doctoral studies, all in architecture, teaching in various schools. But at the same time, architecture schools have historically also had very strong publishing component to them. Architects like to write and publish and produce just as much as they like to build and to teach. So architecture schools often have publishing platforms. And so over the last 15, 20 years or so, I've worked within schools of architecture teaching but also editing. So I've had one foot, in a sense, in both worlds. Most of my teaching has been uh, teaching architectural history, but also being involved with the more contemporary currents of architectural design and architectural practice. And then editorially, I was given a fairly free hand, or have been given a free hand to choose whatever I like. Most of my editorial work for the last 12 years happened at the Architectural Association in London which is an independent private school of architecture, but it's the oldest uh, independent school of architecture in the world. It's sort of mid-19th century it was set up. And it was set up, to a certain extent, as a media platform. It's a club for architecture. It was a club for discussing it, promoting it, disseminating it. So in some senses, it was a magazine. And it then naturally produced its own magazine. And then afterwards, it developed a school around that magazine. and. For 10, 12 years, I edited that magazine as well as lots of other books. And so I was given a free hand to create my own sort of editorial identity as well as the identity of the magazine and how it might relate uh, to the internal world of the AA as a school, but also the external world of anyone interested in architecture. And my natural tendency is to be outward looking. I like architecture in its most polyvalent diverse way rather than it becoming a sort of PR mechanism to promote one particular institution. Yeah. I mean, what I think is really interesting about the AA as well is that, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but the AA has a bit of a reputation as being 
it's it's a little bit of a kind of bubble or you know it's it's quite um I don't want to be too disparaging because that's not what I'm trying to say but it's it's yeah a club but then I feel like the AA files is you from what I've seen of it is very uh, like populist and kind of uh, aspires to a kind of like popular modernism and I don't like the word accessible but kind of because it's not kind of uh, simplistic but I feel like you tried to do a lot of things there that were very open which strikes me as uh, contradictory to the you know, the perceived reputation of the AA, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's things about clubs that I like and things about clubs that I don't like. I don't like elitism. I don't like kind of self-congratulatory things. I don't like exclusivity. I do like the idea of a, of a kind of parlour, of a kind of parlour game, of thinking about discourse through conversation, even through, uh, you know, dinners and chats and some sort of uh, ritualistic processes. And I think that the club is actually, in some ways, a more useful platform than conventional or more typical ones today, like the idea of the university, or like the idea of the office, or like the idea of the corporation, which have completely lost their interest for me. So there's an aspect of club culture that I especially like. And for me, it really is that the way you can be both scholarly and um, expert and engaged with your own discourse, but at the same time accessible to be talking in a way that appeals to multiple demographics. And that's always how I've liked writing, uh, art writing and architectural writing, to be straddling these two things. And my favourite kind of writers have always been able to appeal to both the highbrow world of the academy and the so-called lowbrow world of the of kind of popular discourse. Yeah, you talk a lot about the essay form and how that's a real to kind of master the essay form or to kind of uh, place a lot of importance on the essay form is something that you place quite highly in kind of a writer's toolkit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the essay then becomes my hero and it's the kind of mode of writing I like best. And it's one historic, I like, I'm interested in it historically as an academic. So I like tracing its um, lineage and its uh, best advocates, especially when you set it against other types of writing, writing, academic prose or treatises or manifestos uh, or academic papers. So I like the mischief of the essay. I like the variability of it, but I also like the fact that it's literary, that you are a writer if you're writing uh, essayistically as opposed to a typer if you're just writing academically. And I think that anyone who writes needs to have a, a sensitivity to how sentences sound and to try and appeal to a reader just in terms of the, the niceties of a sentence rather than, you know, always trying to just in terms of what that sentence is saying or the points it's making. So, yeah, all of my favourite writers are essayistic. Just, well, actually, the, the two great platforms I like are biographic, autobiographic or autobiographic writing, people talking about lives, talk, people talking anecdotally, as well as essayistic writing. Mm. Yeah. At MIT now, just to skip ahead slightly with academic writing, you're, and tying it into the conference that we're kind of recording this in reference to, is there like quite a lot of constraints on the style in which uh, academics are writing in the academy? You know, is it, do you come across a, a very consistent style in writing because of the constraints in, you know, trying to write a PhD or something? Does it have to kind of have a certain style or do you get a fair amount of leeway in those circumstances or not? I think that the academy become increasingly unimaginative in imagining what good writing is. And to a certain extent, 
everything in the last 30 years has increasingly radiated or satellited around the model of the PhD and how one constructs a PhD as a kind of read the passage, as a kind of test of endurance for wannabe academics extrudes them into their those academics' future life as a writer. So first books, second books, third books, fourth books are to a certain extent repetitions of that same model. And that model would be a rather, well, more than rather explicit pronouncement of a methodology and a theoretical structure up front. So you go in there big and bold with where your originality lies and your originality is fundamentally methodological. And then you apply that methodology to some poor unsuspecting exemplar. So it's A, B, and C. So, uh, And then you end with a repetition of that same uh, beginning. So in scalar terms, it begins way up high. It then zooms down onto A, B, and C, and then it zooms back out again. I think that's a perfectly useful model. In my own teaching, I think that's eminently sensible for an undergraduate. But I think that as one goes through the academy, you need to develop subtler ways of presenting your ideas. And actually, my own fondnesses are to invert that model. I like theorization. I like methodologies. I like people speculating on a whole diverse range of subjects, but I also like the objects of art and architecture. So I generally like people to start small, up close to something, and which naturally then invites a certain humility. They're not there parking the bus on their own speculations initially, and they're simply describing something, presenting it. They then slowly start to radiate out in terms of the associations of that object or its context or its references before ending more speculatively. So it goes from small to big rather than the classic model, which is big to small. There's a very different training as a writer to a sort of journalist or a critic, isn't it? Where you not churning out, but kind of you have to produce quite a lot of different works. And in a way, there's kind of different set of demands, you know, for an art critic, I think there's something really nice about reading a book of kind of an art critic's collected essays because they kind of have to describe what they're talking about. You know, they can't jump straight into the theory. So you actually kind of feel a bit more grounded in what they're talking about as opposed yeah. to theoretical book yeah. of kind of art theory. You, you, or you sort of feel immediately lost <laughs> in the sort of signposts of the different yeah, methodologies. I do think that, that that apartheid or that splitting of these two realms between theoretical writing and journalistic writing or academic writing and non-academic writing or between theory and practice is a symptom of the last 20, 30 years. And it's definitely something I want to erase. I like the blend of those two things. And actually, that's where my architectural training I find is useful. I mean, the first theorist of architecture um, Alberti, writing in the early Renaissance, he had a very nice formulation for it. He said that someone is a practitioner when they're, they've got a, a brick in their hand, when they've got a trowel, when they're actually building something, and that they're a theoretician when they have a pen in their hand. So the moment you are talking about building or architecture through writing about it, exhibiting it, thinking it, drawing it, you are by definition a theorist. It isn't then this sort of two sides. It isn't a split. You're either this or that. And, and again, I think that a good writer can move in and out of um, describing something, giving a kind of material presentation of something, and then starting to speculate on what that thing might mean.
Mm. And going back to the AA files, so you had the kind of interview format, which you did. Was that how far into your time there did you kind of introduce that? Because it seems like that was a, you introduced that as a kind of sidestep to a lot of architects who perhaps were better with a brick in their hand than <laughs> than a pen. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, architecture is one of those weird disciplines that is always being predicated off its relationship to language. It's been sold as a language, the language of architecture. But it's actually, and actually a lot of architecture is rhetorical. It's architects presenting their projects or presenting a future project as a way to try and get a job. And then their ability to talk about it determines their successes. But strangely, it's one where no one is taught uh, rhetoric in architecture schools. No one's taught how to talk or taught how to write, for sure. And actually, most architects are terrible writers, are lousy writers. But I'd always argue that they're wonderful talkers. And I found that they were generally best at talking about their lives rather than their projects. I think the, the idea of the project is another kind of tyranny, both in art and architecture. And I like the uh, how intertwined lives are with what one does with those lives, you know, and the work that one does. I liked how understanding childhoods and educations and heroic figures and villainous figures, how these intertwined with uh, uh, the work that one does. Yeah, well, going back through some of the talks and conversations you've had, I noticed you kind of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy was something that kind of popped up quite frequently. And I wasn't sure if that was a kind of just a leisure activity or if that was something you kind of tried to integrate into your kind of interviewing. Because essentially, you know, the sort of dyadic relationship of therapy is you kind of asking someone to talk about their lives and trying to detect things that are kind of interesting or pulling yeah. away. I mean, it's sort of pop psychoanalyst. I mean, there used to be this radio show on Radio 4 in England for a long time called In the Psychoanalyst's Chair, uh, which was a sort of interview format, but it was under the rubric of a medical you know, or a, an analytical consultancy room, and people would talk about their lives. It's also, I quite like the sort of cliche of, tell me about your mother, uh, <laughs> to try and understand you know, how that might unlock readings or understandings of a subsequent body of work. But I also like... There's a certain element of a mixture. One of the appeals of psychoanalysis for me in psychoanalytical writing is that it also has a little bit of sort of uh, Dashiell Hammett and Marlowe and Holmes about it. There's a sort of detective fiction aspect of it. I mean, great. Lots of uh, people have written about this. I mean, uh, Ginsberg especially, uh, of these overlaps. But I like the idea of detecting something, uncovering something, a trail, and whether you cast yourself then as an investigator with a magnifying glass or as a sort of analyst surrounded by figurines in a kind of Freudian way. I like the kind of literary romance of, um, of the investigator. Mm. And do you think that's your time sort of interviewing people is analogous to editing in the sense that you're kind of directing someone else to write or talk, but if you kind of overimpose yourself, it can become quite flat and people kind of pull away a little bit and there's, do you see it as a similar dynamic or not really? Yeah, I think that you need an interlocutor. I think you need a touchstone. And whether that touchstone becomes overbearing and tyrannical, like me, or whether they're just more subtly giving prompts and responses, I think you have to have that process. You know, I really believe in the editorial process. I don't, and this again is a slight problem with modern publishing, is that these processes are devolving out Editing is basically copy editing now. It's sort of fixing the typos. The idea of editing in terms of commissioning, 
and having conversations and a book emerging out of those conversations is an older way of operating, but it's one that I'm completely bound to and one I want to kind of recover. You can actually see that in my title at MIT. I'm, I'm called an acquisitions editor. I'm not called a commissioning editor. And I've always slightly bristled at that title because acquisitions seems to suggest that I'm acquiring something, which I really hate because it presupposes that I'm simply buying something and that I'm buying something that already exists. I think the commissioning editor or just editing in general is someone who's collaboratively part of a process that actually engenders something, that helps create something. Mm. And yeah, talking about an academic publisher, so you've come out of a kind of academic institution in one sense, you've kind of gone into another, but both of them have this desire to kind of look outwards. And do you think that you kind of afforded a, a special position in kind of academic publishing in the sense that you're slightly shielded from a kind of market-driven motivation at times, you know? I think that seems to be one of the nicest things about working in academic publishing is that sometimes things can just exist because there's a sort of academic scholarly pursuit behind them that's necessary. I think I'm both shielded by it, but I'm also completely implicated in the market model. I mean, I always wanted to be an academic, but I wanted to be the kind of academic that friends of my parents, my parents were, you know, sitting in a book line room with your feet on the table, polymathically talking about everything and anything, having long holidays, looking at things, and somehow not being judged by output, you know, not being how many books you've written, conference papers you've given, but simply being judged by your intellect, by the your powers as an intellectual. In some senses, my MIT position gives me, maybe it's an illusion or maybe it's a reality of trying to recover that idea of the academic or the academic editor, that I can endorse anything and everything I like. I can endorse these writerly models I like or moving subjects around to be very eclectic, uh, historically aware, but also theoretical, all of those things. But in another sense, I think I'm completely and utterly complicit with the new market model of the university. Because university now is a business, uh, something I really have trouble with morally as much as anything else. And that business, that market runs, the fuel and the engine is research. And the, the physical incarnation of research is the book. So the book is the, that the currency, you know. So I've become like a broker. I, I feel sometimes that I'm just like a banker. You know, I've got the market never stops. You know, my emails never, ever, ever stop. I can take holidays, but then I always have to catch up because it never stops. And I could delude myself into thinking that I'm a high-level broker. I can dictate the market or sometimes anticipate the market, but I'm always um, subservient to that market, which is a big problem for me. And it's not one that I can, I can see a solution through. I mean, I, I, again, I want to move in and out of the academy and editorial world. At the moment, the university is not in a good shape. And I want to try and create something within uh, an editorial platform to bring aspects of the university back into editing rather than the other way around, which seems more difficult at the moment. Yeah. When you're kind of wrestling market forces and you're putting lists together, I'm always curious with editors as to whether you 
do you project outwards the kind of idea of a list you want or do you or a certain set of things you want to address you know certain fields or subject areas that you kind of want to address or 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 is that kind of not really feasible and you kind of have to just you know see where the chips lie and just kind of more intuitively feel your way through the books that you have at hand or the manuscripts you have at hand again i think it's a bit of both i think you have to be you have to deal with what you've got and follow your nose in a way but i think you can also anticipate things i mean in no way do i have a kind of five-year plan i want to have this that and the other and tick them off when they arrive or commission them on or try and, try and create them but i think that i, I don't like i don't want to follow a zeitgeist i follow my nose i mean i like deep thinking scholarly things. I like contemporary things, historical things. I, I mean, I have very Catholic tastes. I want a bit of everything. I don't want to be monothematic or monocultural or to be slave to certain um, zeitgeists or trends. But I know also it's a publisher that needs to sell books. So I have to have a certain ear to what people are interested in. I don't want to let the market dictate the things I'm choosing. I mean, frankly, I really don't know anything about sales. I don't know anything about popularity. I just like to think I can determine whether something's good or important or necessary. I would like to imagine that those good, important and necessary things sell, but that would be a bonus to me. Mm. And we've talked mainly about architecture, but I also want to ask you about art because obviously there's sort of huge swathes of overlap in those two worlds, but I went to art school and I do feel like they're you know, slightly distinct worlds. And I kind of wanted to ask how it feels to have a foot in both and how you, you know, straddle the two and whether you sort of see, I'd be interested to see if you uh, notice uh, tendencies between uh, art writers and architecture writers and if they kind of, if it's possible to identify different traits in their reading and writing. Yeah, I, I mean, they are hugely different. I mean, I'd like to think of architecture as, it's, it's a magpie discipline. It's got lots of everything in it. Whereas art is a very noble discipline. It has a much longer, more distinguished history. Architecture is an interloper. It's a late 19th century thing, frankly. I mean, even though it emerges in the Renaissance, it come, it arrives academically in the mid-19th century. So it's a very late arrival to the party. Art has just been going since the year dot. So it's much more dignified in many ways. And it has it's the writing on art therefore has much deeper archaeology to it. It has a longer traditions of connoisseurship or scholarship or uh, writing materially, writing conceptually, writing in abstract terms, metaphorical terms. Architecture, again, is trying to very quickly process these things. So it feels rather infantile in some ways. I like that deeper history in assuming patronage over an art list. So I, I let each infuse the other. It's also, I'm very conscious of the fact that at MIT, I'm inheriting patronage over really established, you know, the October body of publishing and an incredibly important rethinking of the way one writes about art, you know, which emerged in the early 1970s. Perhaps one could start to challenge the hegemony of October and how that projects itself, I think. We're in an interesting moment now where we could think about other models. Um, architecture doesn't have anything quite like that. Uh, it's always trying to play catch up. But I think there would be a similarity, just as I said, talked about the essay form, for both art and architecture, I want to recover the object. I don't think that the catalogue should always be the repository of images of things. 
just as the university press should be publishing books that are criticism, and that's writing about things with then rather shitty black and white images of those things. I think that you can produce a book that both visually celebrates and presents the thing, the object, as well as brings writing and thinking about those things in their material terms or in their associative, contextual, analytical uh, terms. It's interesting that you say that you think art is the more sort of noble... I feel architecture because it's got quite a proximity to power or kind of influence or historically architecture seems to have a bit more of a kind of close relationship with sort of capital in in a way that makes it almost kind of like, I don't know, there's there's almost a sort of scandalousness to some architecture writing like Hal Foster at October, for example, kind of writing about certain architects and then uh, doing like uh, Q&As with them and, and the architects getting really pissed off at the critics about writing that i don't know there's there's something kind of i just think that architecture is a kind of a glamorous world where to to make a building seems quite substantial whereas to do an exhibition for its pros and cons almost a bit more like play and a bit almost uh, less on the line and i think sometimes you get that with art writing you know i would i would happily read a book of kind of art writing and, and some of it just be kind of off the wall playful and you know maybe terrible in some ways but it feels like there's less on the line in a certain way well, yeah, I mean, there are these cliches of both of those professions. And like all cliches, they're kind of true. You know, a cliche of architecture that it's a profession. So the professional architect is the dignified man. It's always a man who's sort of going out and building for humanity. Whereas the artist, when someone says, I'm an artist, you sort of roll your eyes and you think, oh, good luck with that. You know, someone who hasn't quite resolved what they want to be. But then, of course, these things all flip. You know, architecture now is a, is a dying profession certainly in North America. America is not built by architects, it's built by builders. Architecture is this strange, exotic flower that really doesn't um, have a very rich soil in America. Whereas art now, we all know, is a kind of the ultimate cult of celebrity. If you're an artist and if you're a, a surviving, functioning artist, you are very, very high up the food chain, which brings with it other problems. I mean, I don't want everything to be fawning and deferential to the sort of uh, cult of celebrity. But I like with people like how I like it when people cross over. I mean, I don't like think one should always cross over by saying, in art, one, one understands it in this form as opposed to architecture. I, I, I like the blur. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you to kind of run through your list or kind of forthcoming projects, but I, I am interested to know about, I wanted to talk to you about Sand Future. Sure. Because that seems to be like one of your first, one of the first books you've kind of commissioned and produced and brought to the press. And I wonder if you could talk about it a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while before my books start to appear just because of how drawn out and attracted the process of making a book, commissioning a book, editing a book, writing a book, publishing a book is. So it's only going to be really from 22 that things will start to be holding mine. Up to that point, there's still lots of books that I've inherited that I'm completing, uh, books commissioned by my predecessor. But yeah, you're right. The very first book that's really mine and a book that's a product of the way I like to work, that is a book that was commissioned before it existed. I then worked with the writer and very closely editing, you know, in that rather pompous, heroic way that I see editing, uh, is Sand Future. And it's a book written by an artist called Justin Beale, who's a Brooklyn-based artist, but he's a graduate of architecture. And it's a book 
ostensibly about uh, Minoru Yamazaki, who was the architect of the World Trade Center and Pre-Igo. So two buildings, 30 years apart, that both were destroyed live on television. One that sort of announced the end of modern architecture, the other that announced the end of kind of modern civilization. But what Beale does in an interesting way, he intercuts, in some sense, a fairly straight biography of Yamasaki with other forms of writing, writing in first-person narrative, writing partly about himself, about his relationship with his wife and his daughter, writing through different registers and different narrative streams. It doesn't have a table of contents, doesn't have chapters, it doesn't have footnotes, doesn't have an index. So it doesn't have all of those things that a university press has an almost sacred theological relationship with uh, as registers of quality. It abandons all of those things. But it's written in a really engaging way, in that sort of nice 1970s way of people I like, like Sontag and Didion and Janet Malcolm, that it does exactly what I like in terms of straddling. It's a book that an academic audience will definitely understand and get the references. But it also tells a story that you'd think anybody else might get. Someone who's just who reads um, Joseph O'Neill or or who reads Sebold or Maggie Nelson or whoever. Yeah, it's a novel in some sense. It tells a story. We've designed it in such a way that the book looks like a paperback book, but it's actually very carefully designed. You know, it's custom design. Design is a whole other thing I'm uncovering at MIT that's one of those things that's being devolved out of the whole business, which I want to recover, especially with art and architecture. I love the, the considered graphic way that graphic design can help communicate some of the ideas of a book. So this has been very carefully designed. And in the middle of it, it's got a sort of section of images sewn into the middle of it. So it does talk through its images as well. I'd like to think it will also be successful. I mean, I, I see it in my more academic self as a sort of heir to the two great books on New York of Jane Jacobs's um, Death and Life, The Great American City, and Reverend Goldhouse's Delirious New York. I mean, they're, you could say that they're architectural, but they're basically, uh, whatever the discipline, these are the great books on New York. And I think this is a great book on New York. The sort of middle section with pictures is that kind of nod to the old penguin style thing. Yeah, definitely. I love the graphics of those early period penguins. I like that little coated stock sewn in. But I also like separation of image from text. So it's actually 18th century. It's Diderot. It's encyclopedia where you have entries of text-based entries and then you have plates. And the two don't have integrated images you don't use an image like a little illustration always it it is its own identity it sits by itself within a book and sometimes the text writes about images and sometimes the text the image almost communicates text-based ideas so that they flip their associations but yeah it's a it's a key component of that book and justin who's a really sharp writer but he's also got a very very good eye it was very nice working with him in terms of uh, creating that constellation of images in the middle. And so are you going to be hoping to commission a lot of works that move between narrative fiction, non-fiction, different modes in a sense? Because I feel like whenever I read a book like that, when it's not pronounced, it's usually really good. When it's kind of incredibly pronounced, it's, it can be really crap. <laughs> I wateringly bad. Yeah, you're totally right, Sam. I mean, when someone sets out to be a sort of creative writer, the result always just eye-wateringly bad. 
And actually, I, I never imagined I would work with one of these books quite so soon. I mean, I like the idea of it, but they're rare to find this. Although the weird thing is, in some senses, I've got two in the first batch of books I'm doing. Because another book of mine is called Stories from Architecture, written by a woman called Philippa Lewis, where she takes draw architectural drawings and then imagines a story around that drawing. It's not entirely fictive. It's based on research and scholarship of who drew it and the immediate environments around that drawing. But she also does imagine certain things. So it is fictive. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put this on a flag and wave this around so much that I am the guy who likes fictive writing or literary writing, uh, because like you, it can produce really awful results. But I, I just want writerly writing. I want the writing itself to be something that is well thought through and appealing. Yeah. No, I mean, I was curious about that, actually, because kind of watching some of your talks, talking about real desire to get academics to read more widely and read more kind of novel novelistic stuff. I was curious as to whether or not you just commission any novelists to, to, to write something. Well, I'd love, I'd love some novelists, to, but not just writing about art or architecture, writing novels. I mean, one of the exciting things that's coming up with MIT, not through me, but through my colleague, Mark Lowenthal, is that we're getting some ballad titles in. And Ballard is an incredibly artful and architectural writer. Uh, lots of art and architectural references in his writing. And I like the idea of a university press publishing fiction or poetry. I think it should be publishing all aspects of writing. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. Yeah. I also, I remember sort of a couple weeks after we went into the first lockdown, on another call, we were kind of laughing about the influx of kind of pandemic books. And you're kind of joking about how you can kind of see different waves of... I remember when kind of Trump came into power, there was a sort of wave of fascism books. Someone twigged that everyone's worried about it and you could publish a load of books about what fascism is. And I'm sure amongst them, well, I know amongst them, there's some really good books about fascism. Or I'm sure amongst the books on COVID, there's you know a plethora of really good books, but I imagine there's just as many bad ones. And I, I would be curious as to how, you know, how do you kind of, when you have 30 manuscripts on one thing sat in front of you, what kind of things are you looking out for that you think, oh, okay, okay maybe this is, maybe this is the one of these books on this thing that might be worth. Well, I get, I think in a way, Sam, I hate the zeitgeist. I hate the contemporary. I mean, as you said, I've had so many really like opportunistic books on COVID and in architecture, especially because COVID you know, it's like a bomb going off within how one understands uh, space, you know, not that we now live and work in the same space, completely changes our idea of how one, the places one works, the idea of the city, the idea of the office, the idea of the home. So certain writers and academics have thought that they need to add a subtitle or an addendum or an afterward to their whatever study they've been carrying around with them for the last five years that brings it up to date with some kind of parable about covid it becomes like a sermon you know like a day of a sermon ends with a sense of the contemporary realm and shows you how jesus christ might be relevant to the contemporary realm exactly the same and i really hate that i really hate that because it just feels that it's become weaponized that covid has become another sort of market tool but at the same time it does invite questions about our understanding of these things and yeah i love that to percolate through but I think my more instincts as a historian would be, let's give it time and let, let, let that sit for a little bit. 
Thank you to Tom for that wonderful discussion. And now on to the second part of this episode, where I'll be interviewing Victoria Hindley. So you're uh, an editor who works in visual culture across art, design, and one of the comparisons to your role for a lot of people might be a curator, someone who organises visual information, organises exhibitions, and they might see your role as an editor as kind of comparable to that. And I thought maybe I could start by asking you how you see your role as an editor in relation to those other ideas about how you do your work. Yeah, that's great, Sam. Thank you. So, right. So I work on visual culture and design at the MIT Press. And and what I'm interested in is research and writing that's politically engaged. And so in relationship to curatorial work, which I do have some experience in, uh, you know, in my long history in, in publishing, I really think it's about building a body of knowledge. And, you know, the curatorial method of investigation, of thinking about visual material as cultural production and providing a way for us to develop modes of thinking is very, very much applicable to publishing. You know, I think we're doing the same thing with publishing where certainly with my list, I'm I feel a wonderful privilege and responsibility to build a body of knowledge. And so, you know, what I'm looking for is work that examines the ways in which visual culture and design are really deeply embedded in the social systems that we live in. And I'm curious about how these fields are implicated in the ways that we think about complex issues like gender, like the power of representation. And I think Many curators are also thinking about this and they're trying to visualize these complex social systems. You know, but most of all, I would say one of the guiding principles of my work over the decades has been that I'm I'm really interested in the ways in which both power and oppression are inscribed in the visual. So the driving quest for me, regardless of whether it's a, a, a book or a, a publishing program or a presentation or an exhibition is understanding the power relations inherent in the visual. So I think, you know, one of our great authors, Alexis Boylan, would say it like this. She'd say visual culture is never neutral. Visual culture is power. So then the questions become, who holds the power? Who holds the power and why? How do we see what's hidden from us and why? What, what's at stake? in these dynamics. So publishing is a way to interrogate how the visual reinforces and challenges these systems. Mm. And perhaps leading on from that, how important is it to go beyond a kind of American or Western European context in looking for work and how I get a sense that you want to, in a lot of your books, sort of decenter certain canons of art that are, you know, the key works or, you know, the important canons. Do you think that's something you explicitly attempt to do in, in the books you acquire? Yes, I think, I think that's very well articulated. It is explicit. I mean, I think a lot about how our work can help us engage with the parts of our collective history, global collective history, and how that influences our present moment in ways that have not been articulated and I think decentering is a, is a really great word because 
I see part of my responsibility as challenging the canon, right? I really want to try to comprehend what it is that we have consciously and unwittingly left out of the canon. I want to find ways to bring what we think of as marginalized conversations into the center where we all have more to gain from them. Yeah, hmm. yeah I completely agree, actually, that visual culture and power, dynamics of power and politics, I, I've never really understand people that think there's a kind of neutrality there. I don't, I don't really understand how you can separate things out of that. And also what I find interesting is that in a pop cultural sense, that seems to be a conversation that's happening a lot, lot at the moment. A lot of people's way into politics at the minute is through culture through aesthetics and I was wondering if you talk a little bit about what opportunities that affords you in how space can be opened up for certain conversations through culture through design that may be harder to open up elsewhere yeah so if if I think of my job as uh, supporting research and writing that poses critical investigations and interventions into into the power dynamics that visual culture represents, then of course I'm going to be looking everywhere. I'm going to be working with scholars who have been doing deep dives into archives for decades. I'm going to be working with journalists who are engaging with visual culture on on a daily basis. I'm going to be working with artists and activists who are committed to cultural production or activism from their um, vantage points. And I mean, the fact is, I think visual culture is everywhere. I think we are inundated with it in an unprecedented way that we've never experienced before. And so I'm going to jump right into referring again to to Alexis Boylan because we just did a terrific book with her called Visual Culture. It's an MIT Press Essential Knowledge series book. And um, she's dealing with the phenomena of visual culture in exactly the way that you're referring to. I mean, she 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 recognizes that we're constantly confronted with this hypermediated world of unrelenting visual rhetoric, right? And so if there's one thing that's clear, it's that visuality is central to meaning making. We understand our world, our place in it, in relationship to the visual. We really can't extract that out from epistemologies, whether they're canonical or evolving. And so her book gives us a way to navigate this this kind of visual avalanche and and to think critically about the way in which the the visual is influencing us, how we are influencing it, and, and how it's kind of shaping culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what's really nice about that book as well is that it has something that I really like within writing practices and art practices are kind of like populist, you know, desire to kind of bring people in to all these things. Uh, I think there's a, a perhaps a misconception about art writing sometimes that it's, you know, steeped in post-structuralism or steeped in kind of obscure references and stuff. And, and some of it is, uh, and some of it is and is also really good writing, but actually a huge amount of it seems to be, you know, you point to kind of journalists writing there, you know, there seems to be uh, perhaps a misconception there. Do you, do you think that's a fair assumption? Is it one yeah. that you come across a lot in your work? I think that's a fair assessment. And 
I've tasked myself with trying to find unique ways to bring both the rigor of research and scholarship and accessible writing to the widest possible audience. So, you know, when I began in this field a long time ago, more than a couple of decades ago, I think I was doing the same thing, but it was much more common to publish scholarship for scholars and to publish popular work for non-specialist readers. I have really committed myself over the last decade to challenging that uh, boundary because I don't believe it's necessarily useful. And I also feel like we don't really have that luxury anymore. I feel like I've done the right thing when I'm able to bring the rigor of deep thinking out of the academy or out of the research vault through accessible, jargon-free writing to the widest readership for the greatest impact, right? Because then we're really sharing the knowledge that we're developing. This feels like an appropriate time to bring up Lauren's book, Lauren Fournier's book, or huh. Auto Theory as Feminist Practice, because that's something that seems to be really central to what she's addressing in her research and how you can straddle, I suppose, in an auto-theoretical context, kind of lived experience, everyday life, and also quote-unquote high theory or, 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 you know, complex philosophical frameworks and, and how you can work through them like in tandem with everyday life instead of them being these kind of separated out spheres of life. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the book, uh, your experience of working on it, and um, perhaps how it relates to these questions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a great example. So we're talking about auto theory as feminist practice in art, writing, and criticism. And Lauren Fournier is a rising star, in, in my view, um, a scholar, University of Toronto. And auto theory is a, is a phrase that began circulating mostly with respect to literature, I don't know, maybe a decade or more ago in common parlance. And Lauren has managed to widen the frame of reference that auto theory provides to us to uniting theory and philosophy with autobiography to, again, yes, as you say, examine critical artistic practice as it is lived, uh, primarily through feminist writing, through activism. She goes back and, and, and looks at the careers of amazing artists like Martha Rossler, and how, in fact, you know, in retrospect, in Lauren's way of thinking, this is something that Martha was doing that other amazing artists were doing in the mid-20th century, and it's been going on for, for a long time. You know, Chris Krauss is another person that she would investigate in, in her book. And, you know, you had the great pleasure of, of doing a podcast with Lauren and, and Mackenzie Wark, and I love what Mackenzie had to say in the endorsement for the book, which is that it becomes a, a whole series of tactics for thinking and feeling together from the margins of gender, race, ability, and colonialism. So again, it's about opening up concepts of epistemology. How do we develop knowledge? Is there only one canonical way of thinking about this? Are we thinking anew about how knowledge is formed, how meaning develops, what role does the visual play in that? What role in this case does autobiography, experiential learning play? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Just further to your point there, and something that comes up a lot in uh, Lauren's book, is a very always salient issue of racial politics. And I wanted to ask you how you see your role uh, as a publisher, uh, an institution, and how you see your responsibility to contributing to those struggles and those discussions. Again, I think the advantage we have and that we're learning how to wield in a new way as activists and publishers is that we, we're we really functioning outside the bounds of institutional frameworks as we have known them. And doing this on Zoom all the time forces us to recognize that in a new way, right? And it's a huge advantage and it's also a huge privilege. And I think because it's a huge privilege, it's a platform that we as publishers are really required to take seriously in ways that broaden our own commitments to anti-racist work in particular. And yeah, for me, it has kind of just, it's just deepened the resolve that I have, that has guided my career for many years into a priority. So I am committed to questioning my own ways of visually comprehending the world and trying to find authors who can push me and push others. And, you know, this this makes me want to point to a a forthcoming title that we have that I am incredibly excited about. And I'll, I'll give you and our listeners kind of a preview. And that's a book by Tina Kemp, who's a, a, a visual studies scholar at Brown University. The book is A Black Gaze. And Tina is really the first to theorize a black gaze in response to contemporary black artists who, you know, through their work, they, that they are demanding that we see and that we see blackness in particular in a different way. And to your earlier point, this has been going on for a long time. This has been happening in, in the museums. This has been happening in studios and galleries. And Tina is taking this concept of the gaze, which has been hugely important, as you know, throughout the 20th century, articulated by people like John Berger and Susan Sontag, uh, but mostly articulated from the space of whiteness. And what Tina allows us to do is understand through artists who are working today like Dina Lawson and Arthur Jaffa and Dawood Bay, what it means to do more than simply look. This book is an experience. It solicits a visceral response to Black precarity, but it also invites us into understanding our own positionality as readers with reference to Black joy. Um, It's distinctive positioning and, and, you know, it really shifts us from the passive optics of viewing into a very active struggle of looking with and looking alongside. And, And so this is what I mean when I'm talking about new forms of knowledge. This is a whole new way of being and thinking in relation with others. And so I think this time has I'm not the first to say this, of course, by any means. I think we all understand this time has of the pandemic and the crises that we're experiencing in this country of of, fully comprehending structural racism 
it has put our structural problems into stark relief, which, which gives us a chance to look at them and see them and talk about them and write about them in ways we might not have been able to uh, in the past. So, so I, think it's a, I think it's a revolutionary moment. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was with regards to different writers working in different fields and with different kinds of training, whether that be journalistic, academic, artists, activists. Is there a certain kind of writing that you're attracted to or a certain kind of author that you're looking for in the books that you acquire? I suppose it doesn't feel that foreign to me to move in that range because I'm trained both as a writer and as a visual artist myself. And so that's been part of my life for so long that um, it's kind of the arena that I'm most comfortable in and, you know, kind of moving between those or among those varieties of ways of thinking uh, feels quite natural. And and working with different institutions um, over the years who take a very interdisciplinary approach uh, also, I think, has helped me become very uh, comfortable. You know, I think no matter what, I'm always looking for the same thing, regardless of who's writing, uh, from what field. And that is rigorous critical thinking, the capacity to make a clear argument about something really important, about something about what's at stake, right? Whether it's climate crisis or structural racism. I, I want to know what the what's at stake, why it's important for us to understand more about it. I wanna I wanna learn something I I didn't know or, or even better, I, I wanna I want to learn something I thought I knew, but I want to see it a whole new way through a contrib- contributing writer. And clear compelling writing, um, evocative writing, and, you know, wonderful visual culture that acts as another entry point into the argument. I don't think of images as illustrating texts or texts as explaining images. For me, the two have to work together to become a whole greater than some of their parts. And so I really look for that. Should we finish it there? It's great, Sam. Thank you so much. You've been a delight to talk to you. I wish that it didn't take doing a podcast to have the opportunity to talk Thank you for listening to the MIT Press Podcast, and thank you to Tom and Victoria for taking part. If you enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to hear more, please make sure to subscribe on your medium of choice. And finally, I'd just like to say thank you to Samantha Doyle, who mixes and edits the podcast, and to Kristen Gallino, who provides the soundtrack.